0: Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn more about us through zencare.org. I feel full of sadness and full of joy. It's so amazing to be able to feel all of that. To me, this is what the practice promises that you actually just experience the whole range. instead of our preference for maybe one side of that. And for some reason, it just takes a long time to catch our mind, or we've been studying the ox herding pictures where we're trying to find the ox in the beginning. Trying to find our mind. We know that it's gone off. We know it's not with us and out in the wilds of Manhattan, (laughs) New Jersey, Long Island, any outer borough. (laughs) (laughs) just appreciating how it takes that diligence to just stick with it and just show up moment by moment <coughs> so that we can just participate in a much freer way but if we get so into or feed our habits of preference we stop actually really participating in a free way. At least that's definitely my experience. You know, some people we're getting a little more formal here. Which is actually for Zoom Sense Center it's like incredibly informal. some people love it and some people hate it and actually neither of them matter because the spirit of the practice is not about form it's about how we show up and whether we fall into our habits of whether we like something or not and then that determines whether we participate So the challenge always for me is, how do we show up whether we like something or not? Because in my experience, what I like and what I don't like is not that interesting. And also often when I'm so caught in that, I kind of fall out of the great river of human life. Because I'm just in my little bubble To me, the beauty of this practice is to realize for at least 2,600 years people have been struggling with their habits and their preferences and coming together to learn how to work with them, which seems like a pretty reasonable idea. So to me, part of the beauty in courage of this practice is realizing that we're part of this great river of at least 88 generations of people who are like, you know, we need each other and we can actually wake up. We could simplify the teachings to them. We need each other, and we can wake up together. And to me, it's about how do you ask and think beyond <laughs> your small little brain. into the different lineages that we're part of. Here we're part of a Soto Zen lineage, but we also have our own friend lineage, family lineage. And how do you realize that you're part of that too? And not just the people you know. I love so much by Marie. It says, My Dead Friends. I have begun when I'm weary and can't decide an answer to a bewildering question to ask my dead friends for their opinion. And the answer is often immediate and clear. Should I take the job, move to the city? Should I try to conceive a child in my middle age? They stand in unison, shaking their heads and smiling. Whatever (laughs) leads to joy, they always answer. to more life and less worry. I look into the vase where Billy's ashes were. It's green in there, a green vase. And I ask Billy if I should return the difficult phone call and he says, yes. Billy's already gone through the frightening door whatever he says I'll do I love that not making it about what we want to do when my life is focused on what I want to do It tends to be much less interesting. (coughs) What is in our mind? And does our mind have to be my little mind? But what actually serves? What does actually our own wisdom and compassion say? What does everything and everyone who has come before us say? What's needed? It's an amazing thing to consider when you're having a dilemma just ask the whole world <laughs> ask the last 88 generation what's needed <clears throat> and see if some clarity comes the 7th stage of the ox is the ox has been trained and the rider returns home. And the poem is, astride the ox, you reach home. Now at rest, the ox is forgotten. With the bright sun high in the sky, you feel a blissful repose. Whip and tether are abandoned and behind the thatched hut. But with your mind, you come home when it's really with you. And at rest, the ox can just kind of go off. With the bright sun high in the sky, so with with great awareness, great awareness. You're in blissful repose. Always available. Even in the midst of great struggle. And I love the last line, whip and tether are abandoned, but behind the hut. Because you never know (laughs) when a little more discipline and rigor is going to be needed. Just keep it out back. Which is so encouraging because we realize that when we get to a point in our practice where we can just rest when there's a little less struggle of like, should I sit or should I not sit? Should I go to the Zen Center or should I not? When you realize that that's just not a thing anymore which I in my experience is a relieving moment where you just show up that's what it's talking about so that place where it kind of should I should I should I should I should I should, I, should I, anyone ever do that live their life like that. But you just do it, because that's what, just what you do. The struggle has ended, and there's great relaxation, ease. This is the path, actually, the ease and joy that Dogen often talks about, where it's no longer a thing outside of yourself. Chinese poem that says all is one not two we only make the ox a temporary subject it is as the relationship of a rabbit in a trap a fish in a net as gold in dross or the moon emerging from a cloud One path of clear light travels throughout endless time, always available. So my old teacher died, I would say, when the ego gets out of the way, this is when it can happen. Our little pea brain. <laughs> it's like we don't want to get rid of it because it's you know, helps us walk around. But not to believe it. To me the moments when we stop struggling so much in the back of an ambulance, and the traffic is not moving, I'm always so grateful when the ambulance, you can hear it just flying through, because when you're in the back of an ambulance, (coughs) you really want people to let you pass. Amazing, you can picture often like drivers like, No, I'm not gonna move, I want to get to where I want to get to, and it's so much like practice actually. We get so caught in our little thing, and somebody's life is hanging in the balance, but the freshness of life is always in the balance. Whether we want to actually fully participate is always in the balance. What will you do? Do we need to struggle so much just to show up? Do we have to make it a Megillah? Is that really so important to resist and fight and... Maybe. some centers, they have mindfulness bells. So they ring a bell and everyone smiles. Here we have these sirens. (laughs) But to me, they're so amazing to pause and just really hear them. (laughs) Help is on the way to someone who really needs help. To me, it's like the sound of bodhisattva activity. And when you hear a lot of them, you know that there's like a whole thing happening where many people need help. We're part of that ocean too, that great river of people serving. We all serve in different ways. The Great River. We were also reading for the afternoon Catch Your Mind class about Ruth Fuller Sasaki's life. And I love thinking about her because she was a woman who changed the face of American Buddhism and Zen in particular. And most people don't know who she is. She was born in 1892, back in the day. And she died in 67. But without her, you know, Zen really wouldn't have flourished in the way that it has in America. She studied with D.T. Suzuki in the 1930s, back in the day. And she became the principal supporter of the first Zen Institute, which was really the first Zen place in the city. And she married the Zen priest there. And she lived in Kyoto most of her life, but she wanted to make the teachings that changed her available to everybody. Because at that time, people there were not really translations of things. In 1958, she was the first foreigner to become a priest, first Western person to become a priest in the Rinzai Zen sect, and the only woman, of course. She was the first woman ordained in that temple, in Daikotokuji in Kyoto. You know, first when she got there, she was not allowed to sit in the Zendo because all the monks didn't want her to be there. Not a place for women, never mind Western women. But she was fine, and so she woke up at 5 a.m. and sat in the teacher's private sitting room and carried on the monastic schedule in her, on her own six days a week. And she would sit zazen from 5 a.m. to almost midnight, interspersed with some other things. And she worked on koans. And after a month of this diligent practice, the monks kind of got curious. Who is this person with such sincerity? They welcomed her to practice with them. In this time of dedicated practice, she you know, Ruth said that it was probably the most completely satisfactory time I ever had in my life up until that point. Where she had fully given herself to this schedule, to this way of practicing and being in the world. And she's responsible for translating major texts and making sure that they were available to many, many people. And yet always a practitioner. So we can thank her because we wouldn't be sitting in this space without her. So amazing to remember that our actions affect generations later she says Zen holds that there's no God outside the universe that created it and created people God if we borrow that word for a moment the universe and people are invisible existence one total whole only this is. Anything and everything that appears to us as an individual entity or phenomena, whether it be a planet or an atom, a mouse or a person, is but a temporary manifestation, including you. Of this form. Every activity that takes place, whether it be birth or death, loving or eating, it is but a temporary manifestation of this activity. Each one of us is but a salad. as it were, in the body of the great self. Having come into being, this cell performs its functions and then will pass away, transforming into something else. So that's why it's so amazing, our self-clinging, right? That we are like, mm, me, me, and she's like, really? really? I want to cling. I want to cling. Well, it's not really going to work out. You could spend your life clinging. And then eventually life will take care of itself. You could definitely, it's definitely an option. But as you know, we spent time with people who are dying, no one usually says, "I'm so glad I spent my life clinging." <laughs> used all my energy up clinging to some small sense of myself and what I want and how I want it to be. But it's so amazing because that's what most of us are busy spending time doing. What about this blissful repose? Anybody interested in that? Master Rinzai, who Ruth was a devoted student of, (coughs) said, it is like the true person of no rank. Master Rinzai said, within this lump of red flesh, there is a person a true person of no rank. (laughs) If you've not seen it yet, look, look. Imagine that, just experiencing what you're experiencing when you're experiencing it. Imagine the joy and the sorrow All you have to do is just allow what's happening to be happening and participate and not hesitate. So simple instruction. And as our teacher often says, all you have to be willing to do is surrender everything. That's the only instruction. Marie says, should I take the job, move to the city? Should I try to conceive a child in my middle age?